Well, there I was at uh, Changi International Airport with my wife in Singapore. Uh, we were there in plenty of time. Proceeded to the check-in counter with my bag, suitcases, my uh, and everything. I reached into my bag, and what I expected to find there was strangely missing. Guess what I was looking for? My passport. The most crucial item I needed to board the plane was not there. It didn't matter that I had my suitcase, that I had my ticket, that I had my wife with her passport, that I had my driving license. All that didn't matter <clears throat> because I did not have that crucial document, the passport. <clears throat> all that preparation, all that preparation was in vain if I didn't have my passport. Can you imagine how uh, how stressed I was? <laughs> well, it turned out that. Uh, we had just enough time for my dad to get back to the apartment, drive back quickly, get my passport, uh, return it back to me, present it to the uh, to the check-in counter, and they let me into the, the airplane. So crisis averted. Uh, even better still, actually, we got to the uh, the counter and they said, actually, there's we've overbooked, and because you kind of booked in late, you know, there's no seat for you. So what do they do? Bump you up to business class. You kind of wonder what what God was trying to teach me that day, right? Always wonder. It was crucial to have my passport. The Corinthians were saying that there is no resurrection. Uh, you'll find out in next week's Bible reading, actually, in verse 12. And Paul says that that is a crucial, crucial matter of the utmost importance. Now, he'll delve more deeply into the resurrection in the next passage, but for now he is already flagging how important that is. And he begins addressing this issue from first principles. He begins, as our song suggested, with the gospel. This is important to us like water is important for us to live. Uh, we need to keep reminding ourselves to hydrate. So I've got a water bottle. We need to keep reminding ourselves of the fundamentals of the gospel as it is critical for our eternal life. It should fill us with joy each time we hear it and cause us to reform our understanding according to it. Our world will, at each point of the gospel, challenge its truth. Sometimes the challenge will come from within the walls of even the church. So we need to be vigilant, don't we? We need to be vigilant with the gospel and know its truth, so that when we see the untruths, we recognize for what they are. In the first 11 verses of this chapter, Paul will, number one, point out the commitment to the gospel that is the Corinthians. Number two, then he spent some time reiterating the gospel's content. And lastly, he mounts a defense of himself as an apostle of the gospel. So number one, gospel held. Number two, gospel's content. Number three, gospel's apostle. So Paul firstly points out how the gospel is held by the Corinthians. Have a look with me. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul repeats himself for emphasis. Did you get that, that impression? He emphasizes that it is the same gospel or word that he has preached. And on the other side, he emphasizes that it is the same gospel that they, the Corinthians, have received and been committed to. He believes the same thing that they believe. And as the Corinthians hear this, 
they should feel an indebtedness to Paul as he's the one who brought the gospel to them. Now, I don't know whether you picked this up through the, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians as you've been looking at it in the series, but did you pick up uh, the fact that there is a hint here, as in earlier, that the Corinthians' view of Paul has somewhat deteriorated? They have a lesser view of Paul the Apostle compared to the other Apostles. There's a whole lot of corrections and rebukes that Paul gives the Corinthians in, that, in, in, this, in this letter, isn't there? So you kind of think, well, blow after blow, poor, poor Corinthians. Uh, I feel for you because you must be kind of battle-worn for Paul's, Paul's hitting, hard hitting. So it's striking here when Paul speaks positively of them here. They receive the gospel. They have taken their stand in it. Which is explained by the next verse. What does it mean? It is by this gospel they are being saved. That is, they stand or are saved because of this gospel. But Paul also stops them from complacency. He says, if you hold fast to the word, unless you believed in vain. So this sets up the argument later uh, in the next passage here next week. But already there's encouragement here to hold the line. To hold that line, to stay steadfast to what they believe. Otherwise, otherwise it's all in vain. All without purpose. Friends, if we don't stay the line, if we don't hold the line, we're in danger of receiving the same conclusion. That all that we believe is in vain. Pretty important stuff here, isn't it? In Holy Trinity in Adelaide, we have, a, we have some people here there who've uh, been, who've had to leave their previous churches. And uh, I asked them, why, why did you leave? Because you know, we're not in the habit of, of, uh, of stealing people from other churches, right? We want to encourage them to go back and be, and be, uh, be, be a committed member, a committed Christian in their churches. And what I found out was that actually they left the, uh, some of them had left their churches because the new minister that was coming no longer believed in Jesus as God. And I thought, how could you do that? Why would you bother? Why would you bother being a minister of Jesus and, the, uh, and of the gospel if you didn't believe in the fundamental truths of the gospel? That is, Jesus is God, his son. But they didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And you think, if you didn't believe that, then you wouldn't believe in 1 Corinthians 15. And if you don't believe in 1 Corinthians 15, then why are you a minister of the gospel? I just didn't get it. It makes us at Trinity more determined to keep preaching the crucial truths of the gospel because there are churches out there that don't. And also there are people out there that don't even know the gospel and need to hear it in its truth. Here in 1 Corinthians they are encouraged to hold fast to the word because it is critical, critical for salvation. I wonder how you go holding fast to the gospel. And what does it look like for you? It might mean reminding yourself of this word constantly. It might mean encouraging each other with it. Not just yourself, but look at the neighbours beside you and say, do they know it? How can I encourage them in it? It's correcting when there's a wrong conception of it. You know, that is the loving thing to do, right? When you hear a, a, uh, uh, something that is, that is not taught rightly, even with the right motives and, and, and sincerity, you need to correct because there is... It is crucial that is salvation at stake. 
It's working on our weak spots, studying the scriptures until we are sure of what we believe. It's important because salvation is at stake. It's encouraging your pastors as they preach it. Don't ever take for granted the pastors that you have who preach the gospel faithfully to you. You hear them preach it to you and they are worth gold. You should encourage them in it. In the next section, Paul moves on to the gospel's content. And there's a few surprises here. Let's see whether you pick it up. If, if you were to explain the gospel to a friend, would you have included everything here, I wonder? I wonder. Well, it's in Paul's evangelistic tract. He regards what he's about to write as of first importance, he says. It's fundamental truths. They are truths that he himself received and is passing on. He has benefited from it and he has passed it on to the, to the Corinthians. In fact, he continues his thread of thought at the end of chapter 14, for those of you who went to the, to the, uh, the church camp, that his words are from the Lord still. Can you see that he has faithfully trans, uh, transmitted this message from the Lord to them? And so what are the truths? Number one, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. You see, the first of the fundamental truths of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. That Jesus takes on the punishment that we deserve for our sin, for our ignoring God, for our rejection of Him as our Master. It is God's anointed King who does this. That's what Christ means. It means God's anointed King, the Supreme King, the all-powerful King. He is the one who lays down his life for sinners. Paul makes much of the importance of Jesus' death being in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, that's a surprise to us, I think. I'm not quite sure how often we uh, present the Gospel to people and then we say to them, uh, it's in accordance with the Scriptures. Would you emphasize that link? I wonder. I think the emphasis is that Jesus' atoning death was not a new invention. You know, you weren't supposed to get to, uh, to the New Testament and then Jesus speaks and then you think, that was a surprise. No, no, it was accordance with scriptures. This is something that God has planned from the beginning. This is something that God has looked forward to from the beginning with his prophets, with his Old Testament writers. In our Old Testament passage today, in, uh, in Isaiah 53, we find an example of the scriptures which point forward to Christ's death. Here the figure is called a, a servant. So let me read a little bit of it to you again. <clears throat> he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. It's not new, is it? God has been pointing out Jesus' death and his resurrection from the beginning. And the picture of mankind here, even from Isaiah, is not positive, is it? We are the ones who despised him. We are the one who rejected him. 
We are the one who did not esteem him. We pierced him. We crushed him. We chastised him. We wounded him. It's a pretty bleak picture of mankind, isn't it? <clears throat> no wonder, <coughs> excuse me, mankind deserved death and judgment. Look at how we treated. Look at how we treated Jesus. Look at how the world treats him still today. We pretend he's not there. We reject him. And yet by his wounds we are healed. He gives up his life so that our lives are saved for eternity. I remember when I was in high school, uh, hearing, <coughs> reading a newspaper article about uh, the acts of an older brother. Uh, it happened very close to, uh, to where I lived, up in the north of, uh, of Sydney. And uh, it turns out that this older brother uh, had been walking after school across a six-lane road during peak time. Now this is something that he used to do every day, so it was nothing, nothing special, nothing, nothing new. But today there was something different. Ahead of him was his younger brother. And what his younger brother did not see, he saw. What did he see? He saw a bus. This bus that was hurtling towards his younger brother. And without thinking, he pushes his younger brother to the median strip, and he is hit by the bus. Older brother's life for the youngest brother's safety. Here's something even greater. The life of Jesus Christ, God's anointed King, for the lives of people who hated him, for the lives of people who pretend that he doesn't exist. This is the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? That's number one. Number two, that he was buried. Though Jesus is God's anointed, all-powerful king, though he was, he had the weight of the world's sins on his shoulders, he submits himself to a man's burial. Because he is truly man and truly God. Number three, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And this point, uh, this point will be treated in depth for the rest of the chapter actually, uh, so look forward to that. But here we are reminded of God's plan from the beginning to raise Jesus from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection means more than a wonder, like it's more than just a great miracle. It's more significant than that. It means that God is faithful. There's a passage in, uh, in Psalm 16, let me read it to you. Psalm 16, 8-10, it says, I have set the Lord always before me, this is uh, King David speaking, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely. For you, God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. The resurrection of Jesus speaks of God's faithfulness, that God did not abandon Jesus to the grave, but instead He remembered Jesus and raised Him from the dead. Christ's resurrection also means that He is victorious over death and now sits in judgment over the world, including His enemies. And so you read it in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
The Bible's emphasis with regard to the resurrection is not first and foremost how great this miracle is, but that Jesus is the ultimate king and judge. Before I went to Bible college, uh, I studied engineering. Same engineering as Caleb, actually. Uh, my engineering side always kind of gets awakened uh, whenever I see airplanes. So, you know, kid in a candy store kind of eyes, that's kind of me in an airport. Uh, I love airports. Just to be able to see the aeroplanes and how they're loaded and how it flies. and Just the wonder of seeing a huge, massive metal building, uh, you know, take off. You kind of wonder about that sometimes, don't you? Another, uh, what, what a, even greater thing that I love in airports is actually watching uh, fighter jets. Uh, I don't know about, well, I don't know why, but it's just maybe the guy thing in me that I just love watching. I just love watching jets. And if you've ever seen what's, what's uh, hung underneath the wings of uh, fighter planes, you know why I like it. Right? There are some massive missiles that are stuck underneath those, those, uh, those airplane wings. And you know, it would be a mistake if uh, you kind of admired the aeroplane and you think that's a wonderful uh, 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 wonderful act of modern uh, uh, engineering and then you don't realize how significant those missiles are. Because those, those missiles can cause such great destruction to the point where you would see any enemies looking at these airplanes and the right response would be fear, wouldn't it? It would be a mistake for the enemies to go, that's a nice plane and not realize that it's a threat. Well, sometimes I wonder whether we see the resurrection of Jesus a bit like that. That was a wonderful miracle. Hang on. It actually means that Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God, and he is ready to judge heaven and earth. That's what it means. And it should cause some measure of fear. Jesus may have submitted himself to a human's burial, but he is no mere man. He is the risen Christ, the risen Lord. Number four, Christ appearing to the brothers and apostles. And I think this is the point that I don't usually include in my gospel presentations, and maybe I should because uh, though I don't present it, usually lots of people talk about it and want to know about these witnesses. The appearance to Kephas or, or Peter, the twelve, more than five hundred brothers to James, all the apostles, and then lastly to Paul, it all adds to show that this was not a private event privy only to a few people. It wasn't just you know, something that happened in a back room somewhere with one other person and really you just got to take the word of one person about this event. No, no, this happened to myriads of people. In the time that this, this letter was written, some of these people were still alive. So you could walk down the street, find this person and say, is this true? And if it wasn't true, they would have spoken up. You could have checked. You see, it's not only the Corinthians and Paul who believes this gospel, it's the apostles and many believers who witnessed the risen Jesus. A little side issue here is about uh, what, what apostle means. Uh, apostle just means set one or messenger. And usually it refers to the original 12 disciples, but did you notice here it kind of is a, a little bit more widened than the, the, the original 12 apostles? It's talking about a wider group of people who witnessed Jesus post the resurrection and were sent as messengers, as apostles. So which of these gospel truths do you have questions about, I wonder? 
Whether you are a believer amongst us or whether you are not a believer amongst us, the question still remains. Uh, what do you think about these gospel truths? I'm guessing that you wouldn't have any hesitation about Jesus' death and burial. That's kind of normal. Perhaps you might ask questions about Jesus dying for our sins. Perhaps the resurrection of Jesus is a big question mark for you. Or maybe it's the witnesses, one of whom wrote this letter. Friends, many before you have asked these questions, so there there are no new questions. In fact, before I was a Christian, uh, I asked these questions in similar kind. And I sought uh, uh, questions as well. And I, I remember encouraging this with the, uh, uh, with the uh, university uh, group yesterday. Actually, the questions don't stop once you become a Christian either. You know? You have questions that you, you seek after. And actually, it is, this is the best place to talk about it. Because people here are concerned about the gospel. And people here are concerned about the truth. So you want questions and to discuss and to find out, this is the great place to ask. Ask each other. Ask him. Because he knows everything. <laughs> now he's checking his head. The letter now turns its attention to its author. So the Gospels Apostle. It's, quite, it's really quite interesting how the Apostle Paul describes himself. Uh, if not for his writing elsewhere, you'd think that he'd have a you know, bit of a self-esteem problem. Did you notice? In verse 8 he says here, Last of all, as to one untimely born... He appeared also to me. The word untimely born in the original language actually means the abortion, which kind of uh, is the same as saying basically a freak. So Paul actually says uh, that Christ appeared to him, lastly, as to a freak. You kind of understand that Paul is a bit freaky, isn't he? But you wouldn't have expected that the Apostle would say something like that of himself. In verse 9 he tells us who he is comparing himself to. He's comparing himself to other Apostles. Compared to them, he is the least and not deserving of being a messenger of Christ. And you get a better picture of why it is that he calls himself a freak. And if you know his past, you can understand why he says, uh, why he says this. He persecuted the Church of God in verse 9. Before he believed in Christ, he was a devout Jew bent on getting rid of Christians who basically made a mockery of his religion, of his Jewish religion. He says all this to draw attention to one thing. Don't get this wrong, okay? He says, he says all this is to draw attention to one thing. Not himself, but to God. And to God's grace. He is a walking, talking example of God's unmerited favour. Why else would God choose him to be an apostle? There was nothing of him that deserved him to be called to be an apostle, to be a Christian even. For he persecuted the church. And not only is his conversion a marvellous display of God's grace, but also his hard work. You see in the end of verse 10, that he works harder than any of the other apostles. And again, not drawing attention to himself, but to show, to show that it is God's grace that is working so powerfully in him, in converting him, in pushing him, and motivating him to do the gospel work. It is all God's grace. In Australia, there's a, there's a TV show called uh, Backyard Blitz. 
Has anyone ever heard of backyard blitz? Hey, there's a, isn't there a, um, an Australian channel here? Oh, hang on, they only show children's programs. Alright, backyard blitz. What happens is that someone would write to the program and explain that their next door neighbor or their family member has been going through some pretty hard times and, and they explain how, how, how these guys are such nice people and deserve some kindness because of the, the hardship they've gone through. And, and they would ask the program uh, to renovate this person's backyard in secret as a bit of a gift, as a bit of a favor, right? As a bit of unmerited favor, uh, surprise gift. The episodes are really quite moving. Uh, you get to hear the stories of people uh, and what they've really gone through and how much they've given up for their children and for their friends and their family. And through no fault of their own, uh, they, they, you know, they, they, they've come through a hardship. And, and so you see the tears rolling down. And I don't know about you, but every program I watch now, there's just tears. Uh, what's, what's the deal with that? I noticed, though, something really interesting. They only ever chose deserving people. I mean, I guess if you did the opposite, it wouldn't kind of rate very well, would it? Program decides to do a backyard blitz on the local drug dealer. I don't think you'd get anyone watching that. In fact, I think you would get lots of letters to the program protesting and with outrage about what, 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 why are they encouraging this drug dealer? God chooses to use Paul, a persecutor of his church, to show grace to. The world doesn't know of this kind of grace, except for Jesus. The world does not show this kind of grace. They need Jesus to show it. Our passage ends where it begins, but with one difference. So in verse 11 it says, Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The difference is that it's not just Paul preaching this gospel, it is also the other apostle. It is, it is a consistent gospel that the Corinthians believed. It is the Lord that, that, that told it to them and showed it and lived it. It is the apostles in total that speak the same gospel. It is the Corinthians that have received it and hold fast to it. It is the same authentic gospel. I remember I was in Penang once and uh, I went to a local uh, store on the the road and they were selling uh, tag hoyer watches. $40. I thought, hang on. Pretty sure it doesn't cost $40. So there's something fishy around here. I went to the next door and I saw the exact same watch, but it was $60. I thought, what's going on here? So I spoke to that person and said, but that person is selling for $40. They said, ah, that one, bad imitation. <laughs> you buy that one, huh? you draw in water, you break. You, you buy this one, actually you don't throw in water, like others will break as well. But at least you drop in water, you pick it up, it's okay. But you think it's still there's still knockoffs. <laughs> there's still there's still fake forgeries of the real thing. This is no forgery. This is no uh, uh, fake gospel. You can see through witnesses, through the faithful transmission, through the gospel, through the apostle Paul, that it is the authentic gospel. 
It is the authentic gospel that you have received here as well, as you hear it from the scriptures. We have received the authentic gospel. So what about the gospel today? Is there a threat to the authentic gospel today? I think just as much as in the Corinthians day. Do you think you would be able to tell the authentic gospel from a fake forgery? Do you think you could be able to tell? You know, you know the best liars? The best liars realize that if you want people to swallow a lie, you do one of two things. One, you mix it with just enough truth. Not all of it, because otherwise it wouldn't be a lie. You mix it with just enough truth so that people swallow the lie. Or you remove untasty bits of the truth, just enough so that it, it's, it's, it's palatable. One of two things, right? So what do people add to the gospel then to kind of, to kind of uh, make it a little bit more uh, easy to swallow the lie? Well, what they do is they say, well, you believe in the gospel. Fantastic, we believe that too. But you must be baptized in my church to be a Christian. But I'm already baptized. No, no, no. You have to be baptized in my church to be a Christian. Hang on. Or you must take communion in my church to be a Christian. Or you must speak in tongues or receive a second baptism to be a Christian. Or you must accept another book alongside the scriptures to be a Christian. You know, a book that kind of reinterprets the Bible. Or, on the other side, you can take uh, bits of the gospel away and kind of remove the unsavory bits. Here are some of the things that are removed. Take away the message of sin and judgment so that it sounds more positive and loving. You take away the need for believing in Jesus. And instead what you say is, uh, what's most important is to do do sincere good works. Friends, I just heard that last week over the news. You can take away the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus for, you know, it is embarrassing to modern Christians who know science. Talk instead about Jesus rising in our hearts. Take away the atoning death of Jesus because it would be like condoning divine child abuse. Have you heard that before? So what will you encounter? There are just several. There are several ones that I have heard in my you know, limited walk as a, as a Christian pastor. What do you encounter? Do you know the gospel well enough the authentic gospel well enough to be able to tell what is a forgery when someone is trying to mix a lie with the gospel, when someone is trying to remove bits of the gospel to make it palatable for you to take. Do you think you can tell? Do you know how banks train their staff to work out what is a forgery? Do you know how they do it? Now, you would have thought, right, this is what I would have done. <clears throat> what you would do is you take all the forgeries out there and show them the plethora of, uh, of different forgeries and say, that's a fake one, fake one, fake one, fake one, fake one, fake one, fake one. Now, actually, that's not the way you do it. What you do is you, get, you give them the, uh, the real note 
and then you show them in explicit detail absolutely everything about this knowledge. And they study it. They study every security feature to its minute, minute detail. So they can look at a note and tell, you know, out of its 20 things that, that define what is a real note and be able to work out what is a true, true note compared to, uh, to a fake one. Friends, that's what we do in the gospel. We are to know the gospel so well, inside and out, so when a forgery comes along, you know exactly what is fake. And you take what is right, and you discard what is wrong. Friends, this is something that is that is critical, isn't it? Otherwise, remember what, what, what uh, Paul the Apostle says, what God says. If we don't receive this, then it's all in vain. It's all empty and without purpose. That's right. Father, we thank you for the gospel that has been preached to us, which we have received, and in which we stand, and by which we are being saved. So, Father, we pray that you will help us to hold fast to the word that was preached to us, unless we might believe in vain. In Jesus' name. Amen.